Welcome to King of Glory Lutheran Church Education Podcast. We are a Christian community of faith located in Williamsburg, Virginia. For more information, please visit us on the web at kogva.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, We're missing the man with the perpetual smile. Uh, Dr. Phil Swenson uh, is tied up. And a foss tied up. What? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, he's tied up so that he could not be here. He's at William and Mary at a philosophy conference. He let me know that that would happen, so I knew of that ahead of time. And uh, that's why uh, we've arranged the classes, because this is a class where um, I was going to be the primary presenter. So, uh, today, uh, evil and the justice of God. Uh, for those of you who we're at the early service. The opening hymn today was um, it emphasized the depravity and the fallenness of the human condition. I'm going to read the first three verses. Uh, keep a positive attitude as you hear this because there's verses 4, 5, and 6 that come after these first three verses. Thank goodness. Here we go. All mankind in Adam's fall, one common sin infects us all. From one to all the curse descends, and over all God's wrath descends. Through all our powers corruption creeps, and us in dreadful bondage keeps. In guilt we draw our infant breath, and reap its fruits of woe and death. From hearts depraved to evil prone flow thoughts and deeds of sin alone. God's image lost, the darkened soul seeks not nor find its heavenly goal. So, hymnity does that. It it takes us into the fallenness of our creation in a way that uh, lets us know that uh, in terms of the the tragedies and bad things that happen, that's that's part of our human condition. And so much of it is brought on by our own choices. But then, verses 4, 5, and 6. Are you ready? We can smile about this. But Christ, the second Adam, came to bear our sin and woe and shame, to be our life, our light, our way, our only hope, our only stay. As by one man all mankind fell, and born in sin was doomed to hell, so by one man who took our place, we all were justified by grace. We thank you, Christ. New life is ours. New light, new hope, new strength, new powers. This grace our every way attend until we reach our journey's end. And there she is, Caitlin. Good morning. Uh, Caitlin, um, as for those of you who were at the early service, uh, she has officially been assigned to us as a deaconess intern and will begin her work at the beginning of June. So congratulations. Today uh, we begin with our opening prayer again, uh, a prayer that I think really captures the way we... uh, is there another hand out there? Together we pray. O Lord, our Maker and Protector, while it shall please thee to continue to be in this world, where much is to be done and little is to be known, 
by thy Holy Spirit to withdraw my mind from unprofitable and dangerous inquiries, from difficulties vainly curious, and doubts impossible to be solved. Let me rejoice in the light which thou hast imparted. Let me serve thee with active zeal and humble confidence, and wait with patient expectation for the time in which the soul which thou receive shall be satisfied with knowledge. Amen. We heard about that first part last week, right? That's right. Yeah. Much has to be done, a little to be done. Uh, where do we want to go? Um, this class was seen as a series of classes. And so, because next week we're going to be wrapping up this, and because on Monday evening, uh, we have a planning session at Panera at 5.30, Sarah in Newtown, and it's an open invitation. And we have, I think, six people that are already coming, but if you want to join us for that conversation, you are certainly invited. So this is where we wanted to go. This coming Monday? Yes, tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow at 5.30, Panera in Newtown. Uh, we hope that participants... Number one, we'll have been introduced to the challenge that the problem of evil presents to society and government. Uh, we've mentioned again and again uh, national defense, the incredible amount of money that we spent to protect ourselves internationally from enemies, and uh, local government and society, um, our EMTs, our fire departments, those people who stand ready to help us, uh, social service agencies that when we need uh, when disaster strikes, the Red Cross, huh? the Red Cross is there in order to, and that organization stands there whenever disaster. Uh, what the challenge is to the philosopher and the theologian, and that we hope, uh, Dr. Phil and myself, we hope that, that we have uh, outlined that and determined that more, and then finally for the Christian, because we all live uh, in a society and in families where things happen, where spouses pass away, where children uh, uh, have um, diseases and chronic conditions that compromise their welfare and their health for the rest of their lives. We, we live with that. To be able to articulate the mainstreams of Old Testament and New Testament theology as an explanation of and response to evil and today, we're going to do the New Testament. Uh, have been introduced to the primary philosophical arguments about a good God and a bad world. And I think Dr. Phil Swenson has certainly uh, presided to two very interesting classes that have introduced the Christian philosopher's response. And then finally, understand the importance of theodicy for the Christian. And that is uh, that when people raise the question that we... Uh, first of all, have the, the patience and the grace to listen to people. I mean, when, when people start raising that, they are opening up their soul. And, and they want, especially if they are willing to talk, they are trusting you with their story. And the number one thing that we can do is that we can imitate Job's friends. <laughs> Remember Job's friends when they sat with him? 
Um, his grief, his grief was so great that they sat with him for six days and didn't say a word. They just sat with him, and that I think is our uh, when 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 people raise the issue of why do these things happen, that our first response is to listen, because unless we understand where people are coming from. Our words most likely are going to be heard as pat answers, uh, something that they've probably heard before that just kind of goes over. Unless we able to connect with with the pain of their individual situation, and then finally, to celebrate life with a well seasoned with a well seasoned skepticism, huh? And I think all of us have that, right? If it's too good to be true, it probably is. We know that. Uh, and, and an intrepid hope. And that means that we hope with a, with a uh, boldly. Any questions on that? And that and those uh, were in, in this outline um, that, that we had available. Where we've been. First session, uh, we introduced ourselves and the outline of the sessions. The second session, philosophical arguments using evil as arguments against the existence of God and the counterpoints. Very interesting session. Third session, a high-altitude ten-stop tour of the Old Testament. We kind of cruised through the Old Testament, uh, looking at ten stories in which evil and God's response or God's uh, justice created extraordinary evil in the world. Uh, Noah is one of those examples where God... Uh, in response to the total depravity almost reflects the first three verses of this hymn of God sent the flood. And then finally, um, last week, a divine hiddenness of philosophical arguments and counterpoints from Christian philosophers. So today, Jesus and Paul why Jesus and Paul? For Christians, Jesus becomes our point. If people want to argue religion with us, our fallback is to start talking about Jesus. Uh, all these questions about doctrine and who's doing what and what is right and what is wrong, uh, if we can get the focus on Jesus, we find that there is a place where people are willing to listen to us and to share their own understanding of who Jesus is. And the incredible thing is that you and I, we still have things to learn about Jesus. You know, it doesn't make any difference how well we know the Gospels, how many of, of Jesus' parables we can call to mind, because there's always stuff to know about Jesus, especially as he talks to us about our situations in life. Uh, and then, his, his, his life in terms of how he lived and how he interacted with people. This is a conversation that people, they have a general idea about Jesus. They have this idea that he's this, you know, you know lovely guy who, who uh, you know, walked on the water and maybe did some other things that they would question. But the important thing is how Jesus related to people at the, at the level where they lived and where they struggled. Uh, the woman at the well, 
is, is such a, a wonderful example of that. Uh, John chapter 4. The wedding at Cana. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, I want to give you a flip and chip. Uh, flip is me. Chip is Chip Fraley. Uh, we are going to do a Bible study that's titled Hilarious and Outrageous Passages from Scripture. <laughs> we have nine of them identified, uh, and we're probably going to do them in three uh Three classes, three classes, three classes. So the Flip and Chip Show, uh, and if anybody knows Pastor Fraley, uh, he is the grand master of puns. I mean, he can't say two sentences without a pun being thrown in. He has a wonderful, wonderful sense of humor, and we hope that we can, uh, that, that my seriousness and intensity can be balanced with this frivolity. So, uh, and, uh, and one of those is John chapter 4. I mean, really. I mean, Jesus, it's serious. Did you, okay. Did you, that, if, that if, we, if we take literally what the story says, that there was between 120 and 100, what? Your lesson. Usually, the, the, the key, it, when I get going, the key from Judy is, she says, would you give me a Kleenex? Which usually means I have to get out of the room and stop to be a sense of of self-recollection say, oh, I may be talking too much. <laughs> so Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, please in your Bible. The Beatitudes. <coughs> there are five sermons and uh, in our handout, the bottom of the first page, these two pillars of New Testament theology courageously confront evil in the world without abandoning the world. Could it be that the community of Christ is the place where pilgrims not only learn survival skills, but thrive in the beauty of creation and the fellowship of the church? And I want to answer that in the affirmative. I do believe that the community of Christ is where we can not only survive, but thrive. Faith, the primal relation with God, undergoes a fundamental change with the incarnation. Incarnation, Jesus becomes a human being. The Old Testament certainly foreshadows the New Testament iteration. For example, Genesis 15, 6, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's a key Old Testament passage that becomes the touchstone, the Old Testament basis, for the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. Strangeness breaks with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and continues with the Annunciation then of all things, the Messiah's birth in a manger. And the strangeness continues. In Matthew's Gospel, the first of five sermons, um, it, it's... See, Matthew was written 
for the Jewish audience. And the Jewish audience would consider the five books of Moses to be the foundation stone of the Abrahamic faith. And so Matthew constructs his gospel not in five books, but in five sermons. And uh, this, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, as it begins with the Beatitudes, is underscores the strangeness, the countercultural, and the heretical uh, teachings that Jesus promulgated when he taught. Uh, bad things are redefined as blessings. Jesus' ministry continues to contradict first-century Jewish expectations of who and what the mission of the promised Messiah would be. See, we have to understand that when Jesus came, there was a very definite set of expectations of what the Messiah, who he would be, and what kind of a Messiah he would be, and how he would affect primarily uh, the political and the international fortunes of the Jewish people. And Jesus, of course, came and would have none of that. And the other thing is that the, the Jewish religion very much underscored the fact that if you were good, and if you obeyed the law, and if you, can, if you defined your life according to those Old Testament rituals, good things were going to happen to you. You would have, number one, long life. Number two, you would have many children. Number three, you would have uh, uh, wealth. God would bless you materially. Those were, those were creedal beliefs of the Jewish and the Pharisees. They were the epitome of that. That is what they, they believed. And now comes the Beatitudes. Uh, would someone read uh, chapter 5, verses 2, verses 2 through 12? And uh, we've got a microphone here, so uh, I'm going to turn it to, who's going to read? Good. John, please. Yeah, uh, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you... When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, when I hear that, and hear it in the context of first century Judaism, it takes my breath away. Uh, no wonder. People, when they heard this, say, oh, this guy is totally off the rails. This is, this is not what we believe. We believe the exact opposite again and again. Uh, and Luke's gospel 
the version of the Beatitudes are even, the starkness of Luke is even greater because Luke doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit. He says blessed are the poor. Uh, looking not just in our emotional condition, poor in spirit, how would we define that? Depression, the dark night of the soul, that's no good. We fear that. Those of us who have struggled with depression, we know when that dark cloud comes, whoa, that's the last thing that we want to happen to us. And Jesus says, blessed, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. A long life was promised. Uh, death is, is not something that was welcomed long. And, and so here Jesus said, that it's good. You are, you are blessed. What all of these say is that we, in our humanness, and in the reality of what life is really like, in that God comes to us with his blessings. And, and that is why um, people of faith can look back at their life at horrible things that other people would say, oh, and we can look back and it usually takes a long time, Harriet, it takes a long time for us to take look back and say, wow, uh, I see God's hand in that, and I can see the blessings that came from that. Any questions on that before we move on? Kevin, yes? Uh, I just wanted to say, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a, contra it's, a, it's a counterpoint to the Pharisees. It's his opening volley. Absolutely. And, uh, it's, not, it's not depression, although depression can be part of it. Yeah. It's... Okay, I have to beg for bread. It's, I'm the meek. I'm the... That's right. This is not what we desire. Okay. Yes, John, one more. And then we need to <coughs> me, a lot of people would say, if you're psychologically, emotionally, or otherwise in the ditch, you finally maybe become open to the idea of reliance on God. Absolutely. It's one of the arguments the that we bottom, make. So Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. In two places, Jesus specifically addresses the theodicy. Let's go to Luke chapter 13. Luke cha we have several different versions out there, so I can't call out, but Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 13. And listen, um, our Bible classes here at King of Glory are designed for people who are not familiar with Scripture. So... If ever any of the Bible study teachers ask you to look up at uh, Hezekiah, you know, <laughs> which is not a book. <laughs> uh, but Zephaniah, raise your hand and, and get some help to find it. Um, so our, our, one of our foundational goals is that we want our Bible classes to be available to everybody, no matter what their level of, of Bible knowledge is. So this is Luke. Chapter 13. Would someone read the first five verses? I will. Yes, thanks. There were some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Salam fell and killed them? 
Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. On the handout sheet, four points. Jesus negates four assumptions that people make. They still make this today. Suffering is proportional to sinfulness. You know? Um, tragedy is a sure sign of God's judgment. And we heard religious leaders in our country suggest that um, in response to Katrina and in response to other natural tragedies. Bad things happen only to bad people. Uh, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Uh, and we have the right to make such judgments. You know, if there's one consistent theme of Jesus, St. Paul, and St. James, it's the warning against judging people. And here, uh, Jesus makes that in faith. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. So what he is doing, he's addressing the theodicy of the day. The understanding those Galileans in the temple, it was a horrible thing. It was an act of governmental terrorism that Herod had sent soldiers into the temple and had slaughtered these black Galileans. We don't know much of the background of what happened, but it was a, it was a tragedy. You talk about a terror-inducing event. This, this was it. And then the other thing, the tower that falls on people. You know, is it because uh, they, uh, they were greater sinners? And we are warned not to do that. The second place is John chapter 9. And this is an extraordinary chapter. Um, oh. Would someone read the first seven verses? John chapter, so Matthew, Luke, John comes right after Luke. So someone, the first seven verses? As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. <laughs> then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. Okay. Very clear what the, uh, the contemporary theodicy was. Uh, congenital defect. Uh, man born blind. A uh, couple options. One, the parents could have sinned. Or... The person in utero could have committed blasphemy, and for that was um, Judy and I were brand new to the Lutheran Church of the Ascension. Uh, 
1976. Um, I had uh, I had preached there probably four or five times, and part of the gig was Bible class. And uh, in that Bible class, uh, somehow uh, the fact that our second daughter had been born without her right arm uh, came up. And this man, he was not part of the congregation. He was a visitor that Sunday. He said, Pastor, have you and your wife figured out what sin you committed that would make your daughter be born that way? Uh, and that, uh, and of course, he was shunned by the rest of the, by the, rest of the class for the rest of the day. Uh, but, but it was, you know, that kind of thinking still exists. You know, that there's, if this kind of thing happens that it must be somebody's sin. And what does Jesus say? Is it a satisfactory explanation for a man born blind? The answer is no. From our human standpoint, it's not a satisfactory answer. From God's standpoint, is it satisfactory? Oh, yes, it is. Because God, and this is what we pray, don't we? Thy will be done. So, in the scheme of things, uh, uh, if, if this happens, God causes it or allows it, however you want to define it, uh, in this particular instance, it was done in order that the glory of God, um, that the works of God might be displayed in Him. Now, uh, back to our handout. Jesus, and I have their uh, disciples reflect the theodicy of the day. It was quite creative. There were several options. We mentioned that, our own personal experience. Uh, Jesus swats that away with this challenging rejoinder, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. What does that mean? And here are two things that we have to consider. Number one, was this for this particular teaching moment? Or, as a general statement for all congenital conditions, or maybe even all situations where suffering is involved? So what do you think? All it could be. What happens, it, it almost seems that it would be A, because of what happens in the rest of the chapter. Chapter 9 is one of the most challenging and interesting and mind-boggling chapters in the New Testament. Flip and Chip will not deal with this chapter. <laughs> there's, there's, uh, there might be some humor if you really press it. But this is um, an incredible story of struggle that has to do with Jesus' identity. It has to do with being blind and seeing, not just physically, but being able to see who Jesus actually was. It has to do with the conflict uh, within the lay people of the community and the religious establishment in terms of that. And then at the very end, Jesus takes all of this and he wraps it up in a way that uh, 
Well, let's let's look at the very end of uh, let's thirty-five to the end. John, would you please read again? This is chapter nine, verses thirty-five to the end. <coughs> Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, "Do you believe in the Son of Man?" <coughs> he answered. And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? I love it. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are, you all, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. <laughs> guilt. <laughs> I mean, this... Um, one of the things that Dr. Phil and I hope to understand is that when we approach evil and suffering... Um, the Christian approaches evil and suffering totally different from the person who has no faith. And that is why um, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What does that say? I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Because we know that, that uh, whatever the explanation is, you know, is this the result of God's justice as we identified in the Old Testament again and again? Uh, or is this um, because this is the way God has created the world? Or is it because of free will? All of that really doesn't make any difference if we approach it, number one, from the standpoint of faith and within the worshiping community of Christ's family. Uh, again, it is impossible for us to weather evil and suffering alone. And that is why the promise, again and again, uh, reflected in Jesus' name, Emmanuel, the promise that, that we will not be alone. And for us who are may not have good social skills, uh, may be because of guilt or whatever, it is imperative upon us that we reach out um, to fellow Christians, to our pastor, uh, to religious literature, in order to find comfort and encouragement as we go through life. Um, before we move to, I think we've moved to Paul. Yeah. Um, before we do that, is um, any questions on Jesus before we move on? Okay, here we go. Ta-da! Um, I believe that the story of Saul's conversion is key to understanding how Paul approached his own ministry. And Paul, not only in his ministry, but also in his writings, is breathtakingly transparent. We get to know who this guy is. We know his inner workings. We know his fears. We know his foibles. Uh, we know his weaknesses. Uh, we know his his obstinacy. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, we know his patience. We know his passionate love for his congregation. We know his absolute frustration with some of his congregation because they had been misled a different way. I think it all goes back to the fact that Paul's conversion took this man who was an extraordinarily educated and faithful Pharisee. Uh, Gamaliel, was it Gamaliel, his teacher? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, this was, this, this was a man, and not only was he well-educated, but by golly, he put his beliefs into action because on the road to Damascus, what was he going to do? <laughs> he, he was going to imprison, and you know, and we also know that this guy, named previously known Saul, was when the first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned. Who, who was the guy? Who was the, who was the coat check guy? <laughs> yeah, it was Saul. Was you know watching? You know, so nobody would run up to the guys. You know, as they stripped down to, to stone Stephen. Uh, this is a man, and the reason that I feel it is important that it's it's repeated twice. Uh, by Paul on two occasions in Acts 22 and Acts 26. The original story is told by Luke, but then Paul retells it because for him it was a definitive moment in his life. Unfortunately, Lutherans don't, it's not part of our tradition, but for many other Christians, a transformational coming to Jesus, uh, committing one's life to Christ is a transformational moment that becomes part of their testimony. Uh, we don't do that. Uh, the best we do is what we heard at the early service uh, by, by Grant and Jacqueline. Um, those of us who were at the early service, we heard these two young people. Jacqueline, um, what a beautiful testimony as she talked about her struggles in middle school. Uh, and how her faith had made her less apprehensive about middle school. And then Grant, uh, in, in his testimony, we do that with our confirmation kids, but, but it's not like these grand conversion experiences that we had, like, like Paul had. And it's definitive in Paul's understanding of God's work in the world and in individuals' lives, because Paul really believed that, well, let's get into it. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, if you just simply go, continue paging in your Bible through Acts, and then you'll find Romans. You get through Romans, and da-da, what do you find? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, uh, we talked earlier about Paul's absolute frustration about congregations that went off um, I am convinced that St. Paul did not like to write letters um, because all of his letters except one is prompted by situations, you know, uh, and, and it used to be that way with us, you know, now we can handle things by email or by fax or other things, but, but at one time when we got a letter, whoa, 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 uh, and still, um, does the IRS... I think when there's a problem, they also send letters. Yeah, yeah. They, they say, don't listen to somebody on the phone that tells you that the IRS. They, they still send a letter. And so St. Paul, uh, with, with, the, with the congregation in Corinth, he was dealing with a congregation that had literally uh, disappointed him 
And because of the way they were going, he felt that their salvation was at risk. And so he is absolute passionate. Uh, did anybody get up on the wrong side of the bed this morning and just kind of <laughs> grumpy? If, if any, because we want you to read uh, uh, verses 4. Uh, I've already read one. <laughs> okay, I'll do it. Verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, let's start with verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paul's, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So at that point, what had happened? It happens in many congregations. It had devolved into cliques, where people were, you know, they were the 8 o'clock people, and the 9 service people. <laughs> uh, but but it, it's so easy to, get, to find people who think like us, and there's frustration, and we go, and Paul says, and then he focuses on, and, and he is so wrapped up that he forgets, and let me show you. Uh, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And unfortunately, he did not have an IBM selectric with correcting tape. <laughs> Do you remember those? Yes. Where you could go back and the little white tape yes. would come up and yes. would take it. He didn't have that. So he has to admit his error, and he says... Oh, gosh, yes, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. <laughs> For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And if you have your own Bible underline, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, because that's the hint of where he is now going in the coming verses. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Is there another translation out there that uses a different word? Perish, for the message of the cross, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Excellent. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is radical stuff. Because on the cross, what happened? The Son of God... Died. What? Died. Died. Not a natural death. But he died at the hands of sinful men. I mean, and then Paul says, this, this, is, this is the power of God. The word is written, I will destroy the wisdom I, I wish... I wish Dr. Phil were here because at this point I'll go, yeah, yeah you guys, you philosophers, yeah. <laughs> and the discernment of the discerning, I will work. Verse 12. Where is the one, where is it, verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Okay, to our handout sheet on Paul. It's the last page, 1 Corinthians 1. Um, what is interesting is that the focus is not the empty tomb that comes much later in chapter 15, but on the cross. Is the implication that what humans normally call evil failure is what God uses to demonstrate his power in totally counterintuitive ways? The cross of Christ, he mentions it twice. It's the power of God. He says that twice. He emphasizes that. Notice, human wisdom is foolishness. Now, what Paul is doing, he is defining the two great horizons of understanding the world. On one side is the Eastern or the Jewish way of defining the world. On the other hand was the Western or the Greek way of defining the world. The Eastern, the Jewish way, was to define God in what? The Exodus, in mighty acts of deliverance. That is why uh, there were the... Uh, those groups that felt that the Messiah would come and would be would be uh, the leader of a political rebellion uh, that would overthrow Roman oppression and would once again establish the nation of Israel in the same way that David they were looking for that the mighty uh, the horse and rider thrown into the sea that kind of God they were looking on the other hand was Greek Sorry, philosophy. I can't search the web on Apple Watch. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> 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 so Did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so on the other side was, was philosophy. And there, God was to be sought not in the great magnificent acts of power, but it was to be in the mind in philosophical discussions, in understanding uh, the news, that, that, that ephemeral idea of God, and that we, in our search, we become like gods as we understand and take credit for what we know. It was a Tower of Babel kind of thing, uh, once again repeated. Um, and Paul says, no, neither of those. Uh, and he goes on then, and he reads, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, verse 23, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Stumbling block? Jesus describes that. Because the Messiah was not going to wind up on the cross. The Messiah was not going to be one who would be spit upon and mocked our, our Lenten series. Um, he, he, that, that was not what the Messiah... So uh, the fact that Jesus was a Messiah in that way, uh, Jews still you know, do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. And then comes uh, its foolishness. Um, 
because it's foolishness that God would become a human being. The incarnation is absolute foolishness to the Greek mind, to the mind of intellectual and philosophical inquiry, because we rise above, and that was the whole idea of Greek philosophy, that we rise above this and are able to put uh, this existence behind us. So, the Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so the focus then, when we take a look at the world, uh, we have to be very aware, because I think most of us might, our default setting would be, we're looking for God to make us number one, to win the national championship. It was very interesting last night, if you were watching, uh, that is uh, the uh, Texas Tech after the game, when they followed the coach into the, uh, the uh, dressing room, and as soon as the team knelt down, they cut away and went to the yeah. Uh, they were not going to show the fact that, um, and the guy who was interviewed, uh, the first thing that he did, he, he gave a testimony to, to God and to his Lord and Savior who enabled him to do that. Uh, so, uh, so is, you know, did they win the national, you know, are they in the finals because they are Christians, because that's what they look to God for, to, to, to win basketball games? Uh, um, we don't criticize that. Um, but, but we know that, that this is not the God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. He is more likely the God of the loser. Uh, the, the team that goes 3-22 and 22 in a season <laughs> rather than, than the other way around. So, um, we need to move on to any questions on this. This is absolutely key. And I commend to your study this particular chapter in terms of how Paul deals with the foolishness of, of God and the power of God in Jesus Christ. Romans 7 and 8. Um, so we back up now in our Bibles to Romans chapter 7. And here again, St. Paul, uh, very briefly in St. Paul, uh, 15 to 25. Um, ch chapter 7, verses 15. Um, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not, for I do, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. He could have written the first three verses of that hymn I started with. Uh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He's not talking about the devil here. He's talking about sin something that's internal, something that we live with, that we have to contend with. So I find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close. Notice the word that's used. Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my member another law, raging war against the law of my mind, and making captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is a severely conflicted person. I do not believe that all Christians are conflicted as St. Paul was. But I do believe that some Christians struggle with that. And I also believe that at periods of our life, we may also encounter periods where we struggle. Um, I had a situation, I was in a meeting uh, in Norfolk on Tuesday, and a, a situation came up, and uh, without thinking, I said something that someone later said, Bill, when you said that, all the air went out of the room. It was terrible. I could not believe that I had said it. It was an insult. Uh, it was contentious. And I I had no idea. I, I wasn't brooding at that point. But somebody said something and bang, I said it. And so I sp spent the rest of the, the meeting kind of, uh, and at the end I, I apologized for my... Um, so anyway, it happens. And of course, you probably know that I'm a little bit impulsive, and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you're not a burden with that particular... But if you are, you know, we re our, our reactivity, um, part of that, and, and we have to work, and that is why St. Paul talks about the struggle, and that Luther, with baptism, says that day after day, the old Adam within me should be put to death and die, so that a new person, it's a daily struggle that we, that we deal with this. Um, now, Romans chapter 8. Um, again, the, the handout sheet. Um, verses 18 to 22. Would somebody read verses 18 to 22? Chapter 8 of Romans. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So what does Paul do here? As a little boy... I remember going with my father on pastoral calls, and in dire situations, he would read this to people. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. He is relativizing suffering. Please do not do that. Unless you know where the other person is. Because this is the kind of thing that diminishes and demeans a person's experience. If a person is suffering, they are not ready for this. They, they simply don't. The other thing that he does, he globalizes suffering. All of creation. It, it, we're not unique in our suffering. Our country is not unique in terms of the struggles that it's going through right now. Paul does those two things, and again, these are words for people of faith, for people who understand and who... Um, can look back and say, right, um, in terms of the hope of, of heaven and the glory that waits me, 
This is small faith. Uh, let's uh, verse twenty-eight, uh, and this is another one that people throws at people in the midst of suffering that many times is totally inappropriate. Verse twenty-eight. Oh yeah. <laughs> it won't bite you. You can read it. A grief observed, again, let me recommend that book, C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed. Uh, this great Christian, uh, when he lost his wife, he went into a period of time where it was just not there. It was just it's not tough there. to read. It's very difficult to do, but it's powerful in terms of where, where the book comes out. Uh, and then um, Romans 8, 35 to 39. It's a, okay, uh, Jim, would you read that, please? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And it is written, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Keep going. Yeah. No, in all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Thank you. Can all God's people say amen? Amen. All God's people can say amen. But that's a gift that we can say because of our faith and our trust in the promises of God. Now, unfortunately, we're almost out of town time. I promised that we would be dealing with the next three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Uh, I'm just going to read the first couple verses of the next three chapters. So chapter 9... Uh, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What's his anguish? His people, the Jews, were not accepting Christ as the Messiah. Chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and pray to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They were clinging to their own righteousness rather than Christ's righteousness. Chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Wow! Paul is going right at God! It, 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 it is the logical question. And again and again, as you read Paul's epistles, you will find him in his internal dialogue, you will find him verbalizing obvious questions. Uh, we, we find that in Romans chapter 6, when he, when he talks about, when he says, uh, 
Should we sin more in order that God, because he has just talked about the wonderful grace of God, and Paul says, should we sin more that God would have more jollies in forgiving us more? <laughs> you know? And here, the obvious question is this. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And then uh, verses 25 to 36. I'm only going to read uh, verse 33 to the end. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And that's the way he ends these three extraordinary chapters in which he struggles with, with the mystery of the Jews. Those people that had all those things not accepting the Christ. Um, and for those of you who are interested in taking a look, there are those who believe that chapter 11 opens up the possibility that Paul felt that the Jews would be giving another chance and that at one point all of them would be saved. So that, that's, that's a contentious issue in New Testament scholarship and New Testament theology. Read it and you can decide for yourself where Paul comes out. And for any of us who have struggled with relatives uh, who reject Jesus, uh, uh, it's also, we might find some comfort as Paul struggles with his own kinsfolks who, who do not accept. Um, Revelation, uh, we're not going to deal with that. Um, for those of you who may have been caught up with uh, the rapture and other things like that, this publication, The End Times, is there is there is nothing better that the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has prepared on the end times apocalyptic literature uh, than this particular document. Um, and uh, uh, we may deal a little bit with this next week in our final class, but the group will decide if we want to get into this at all. Any conclusion, co concluding comments? Today, I feel like we've been running pretty high RPMs, huh? Yeah. Good <laughs> Thank you, Judy. <laughs> uh, okay. Closing thoughts. No pet answers, but an immense context of meaning and hope. Right. Um, and part of that is the mystery of our faith and the fact that we can talk about this and we can share our struggles. The seventh petition and deliver us from evil. Uh, we pray in this petition as in a summary that our Father in heaven would deliver us from all manner of evil. Notice body and soul, property and honor. And at last, when our last hour shall come, <coughs> us a blessed end and graciously take us from what's a, this veil of tears. This veil of tears. Suffering goes with this world to himself and him. Next week, open invitation to Panera, Newtown, tomorrow at 5.30 to talk about the final class. We have a small group already committed, um, and um, I have already received two carefully crafted and well-thought responses to this class that I'll be sharing with the group that gathers tomorrow as a way to kick off our conversation. Together, let's pray.
Blessed Lord, who has caused all the Holy Spirit to be written for our learning, grant that we may such as wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and never hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, and a one God, world without end. Amen. The blessed hope of everlasting life. God go with you. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the King of Glory Church Education Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God and His people, grow in faith and love, and live through service and sharing. Visit us on the web at kogva.org.